Welcome to this corporate ABF. Uh, this morning, it's wonderful to see you all. It's a corporate ABF on discipling in the church. That's what we're going to be thinking about. Um, and just to be clear from the outset, because this is a one-off class, I am not going to tell you everything that there is to know about discipling. That's not going to happen this morning. Uh, but we are going to discuss some things uh, that are per- pertinent to our current situation in this pandemic, and as well, uh, just to thinking specifically about discipling within the confines of the local church. That's really what we're going to be spending our time in this morning. And so that's where we're headed. I can't say everything, uh, but we will get to touch on a lot. This is going to be a dialogue with you all uh, throughout, and so I'm going to ask for your participation. So please just, you know, quick answers. Um, You don't have to, I mean, you can raise your hand. That would be great, but just quick answers are wonderful. Um, You can shout them out so I can hear you all the way up here since you are all over the place. Um, But that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be more of a dialogue. I'll be asking questions to you, asking you to read scripture, that kind of thing. I don't want to just give you content for 45 minutes straight. I'd rather us be able to dialogue about discipling within the church, ways that you've experienced it in the past, and uh, ideas for the future. Okay, I'm going to begin by praying for us, and then we'll rock and roll. All right, let's pray. Father, we give praise to you that you sent your son to save a people for himself. And Lord, we praise you that you have called us to yourself, to your son, so that you would send us back out to go save a people for your son through us. Lord, we praise you uh, for this topic this morning Uh, that a disciple is one who is following Jesus, and yet that doesn't first happen outside, unless it's outside of first the work that Christ has done in our place. And so, Lord, we praise you for that work of Christ. And, Lord, we pray that we would seek to be faithful, to live lives that honor you, and seeking to do spiritual good to one another. So, Lord, help us this morning think deeply about discipling so that we may better be an encouragement to one another and emit the fragrant aroma of the gospel to the world of a supernatural, compelling community inside this church. Lord, a community that they will not get anywhere else. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Israel, there are two major bodies of water. Anybody want to give a guess as to what those bodies are? Two major bodies of water. If Wayne Summers was here, he would know this. He's got charts galore in his factory of these bodies of water. In Israel. Okay, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. Wonderful. That's exactly right. So you've got the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Dead Sea further south. In between them is the Jordan River. In both of those bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, they have something in common and they have something different. You might have heard this illustration. Both have fresh water flowing into them. That's that's what they have in common. And yet the difference is that the Sea of Galilee has an outlet. Water flows out of the Sea of Galilee into the Jordan River. That's what is the difference. And because fresh water is flowing in and out of the Sea of Galilee... It's full of life. It is teeming with life. The Dead Sea, on the other hand, has more fresh water flowing into it, but everything dies in the Dead Sea because it just stagnates there. And it dies because there's, there's no outlet. There's nowhere for that water to go. 
A lot of us in here this morning have fresh water pouring into our lives throughout the week. What would be some examples of that fresh water of God's word flowing into our lives throughout the week? Even this morning, what would be examples of that? You can shout them out. Okay, teaching. So this right here, what else? Corporate worship, preaching, okay. Music, thank you. Look at that, piano player. Personal Bible study, great. Your morning devotions, yep. Anything else throughout the week? Say it again. Prayer meeting, that's right. Wednesday night, that's right. So we've got a lot of different outlets flowing into our life, pumping fresh water in, and oftentimes we get stuck in the rut of consuming material all the while our soul could be shriveling up where there is no output to others. And so every Christian is like one of these bodies of water. They're either consuming content and becoming stagnant, or they're putting out what's been put into them, and they are teeming, they are full of life. Every Christian is like one of those bodies of water. And this morning, I want to help us think practically about how we can be conduits of God's grace to one another so that we don't become spiritual cul-de-sacs where things just kind of hole up and stay. And so that's what we want to think about this morning. And this will ultimately happen through discipling relationships in the local church, which is our topic this morning. And so first, before we even think about that, we need to know what it means to disciple. So what is discipling? That's point one. You've probably got a handout online that you can find a digital copy of the handout uh, and work through that. And we're at point number one. We're going to look at the what, why, and how of discipling in the church. So what is discipling? Well, before we can get at a definition of discipling, we need to know what a disciple is. So if someone comes up to you and they ask you, you know, they're new to Christianity, what is a disciple? Jesus talks about his disciples. What is, what is a disciple? What would you say? You can shout the answer. Learner. learner. Good, yeah. Disciple means learner. That's right. Which implies what? Learning something. Okay, which means what? Learning about Jesus. That's right. So, yeah, he's a learner, right? Disciple is a learner, which means that they're being taught. It's implied that there is some kind of teaching. They have to be learning something. What else? How else would you describe that? Yeah, observe all the commands that he has taught us. That's right. Matthew 28, right there in the Great Commission. Yeah, so a disciple is a learner. They are one who receives teaching And you can have disciples of anyone, really. And yet, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus. He is one or she is one who follows Jesus. And so before you follow Jesus, you must enter into a personal saving relationship with him. And so disciples of Jesus are those who've been united to Christ through faith. That's what a disciple is. It's first and foremost one who's been united to Jesus through through faith. They've received the gospel the good news that God created us for the praise of his glory, and yet we sin by rejecting him and giving him praise and glory that he is due. And because of that, we are separated. We are alienated from God, and we deserve eternal condemnation because of our sin. However, God in his love and his mercy sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins by dying our death 
on the cross, and then three days later, rising from the grave, conquering sin and death for us and for all who turn from their sins and trust in Christ and receive eternal life. As it's been said, being a disciple of Christ doesn't begin with something that we do. It begins with something Christ did. Christian discipleship doesn't begin or actually begins when we receive this good news and we're united to him through repentance and faith. It is the supernatural result of having the Spirit of God dwelling in us that we disciple one another, right? It's a work of the Spirit. We don't grow into being concerned about discipling. It's just what it means to be a Christian. It's basic Christianity 101. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you to repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus and enter into walking with him for the rest of your life, into what it looks like to receive forgiveness of sins and to follow him in repentance and faith for the rest of your life among his people within the local church. The reality is that we are all disciples. We're either a disciple of Satan or of Christ. One leads to life, the other is going to lead to death. The question is, whose disciple are you? Maybe you need to ask yourself that question this morning, depending upon the way you're living your life. Whose disciple are you? So question for you all, can there be a Christian who isn't a disciple or one who follows Jesus? Is there such thing as a Christian who isn't a disciple? No. All right, not a trick question. That is no, that is correct, right? To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And so when you're discipling others and one another, you're discipling other Christians. There are no disciples who aren't Christians. And to be a disciple is to follow Jesus, which means, as Jesus says in Mark 8, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and to follow him. But not only are we to be disciples, we're also actually called to make disciples. Jesus' last command before ascending to heaven was to go and to make disciples. Our lives are to be dedicated to helping others follow Jesus. That's what we're to do. That's the last command, make disciples. And so our entire lives ought to be built around that very command. So what is discipling? What is discipling? I want to work on a broad definition for us this morning. Discipling is helping others be more like Jesus by doing deliberate spiritual good to them. It's a very broad definition, okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go get a 12-week Bible study going and then, you know, that's what discipling looks like in order to do that. But I want to think about it broadly. It's helping others be more like Jesus by doing deliberate spiritual good to them. It's doing spiritual good to one another. And I think it's helpful to clarify the difference between discipleship and discipling. We all often mix these up. I know I myself mix these up and have gotten these wrong. But discipleship is my following Jesus. It's my following Jesus. That's discipleship. Discipling is me helping Ed follow Jesus or Ed helping me follow Jesus. It's me helping someone else. That's what discipling is. And so this is a reminder that discipling isn't delegated to just a few people, say those on staff or those in ministry or those who are elders or who are deacons. Discipling isn't just delegated to them. Jesus has called all his disciples to make disciples, 
We are all called to do that. And we have to ask ourselves whether or not we're living in obedience to him and whether that actually characterizes our lives. And so discipling is the supernatural result of having the Spirit of God dwelling with you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to obey all Jesus taught you, nor would you be able to help others do the same. Ultimately, we don't grow into being concerned about discipling. Instead, it's what it means fundamentally to be a Christian. Now, this means that the life of a disciple doesn't just look like you, your Bible, and Jesus. That's not what a life of a disciple necessarily just looks like. Yes, we have personal devotions and our own kind of being disciples. That's what would be classified on, the, on, on that. But in terms of discipling, it involves a web of relationships bent on doing spiritual good to one another. Discipling is fundamentally others-oriented. That's what it is. It's not made for the self-made man or woman or the rugged individual. And this shows us that real maturity happens with not only just being hungry for your own growth, though that's excellent, but also being hungry for the growth of others. And we see examples of this throughout Scripture. What are some examples of discipling relationships throughout Scripture? Think old and new. Old and New Testaments. What are examples of this? Good, yeah, that's right. Elijah and Elisha. Paul and Titus. Ooh, look at you, not even going with Timothy. You just one-upped. All right, Paul and Titus. Peter and Mark. Any other Old Testament examples? Eli and Samuel. Nathan and David. Yeah, Psalm 51. Yeah, great. Moses and Joshua. Excellent. Any others? New Testament. Jesus and his 12 disciples. That's right. That's exactly right. And the three that he poured into, specifically out of that 12, James, John, and Peter. Right? What are some examples from your own life? Think about your own life and those who had spiritual influence over you in doing spiritual good to you. What are some examples from your own life? And what did that look like? I want to give all of us an idea. All right, how about this? How many of you would say that you've been discipled before? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Now, what are some of those examples? Okay, deliberate discipleship. So, Nick, give me a couple of examples of that. So, like, what, what did that deliberate discipleship look like in your life? Excellent. What else? Other examples? Yep, Danny. Hmm. What did you all do in their home? Kind of, you know, was it like questions they were asking you, things you would regularly talk about? Yeah. 
Excellent. That's great. Great. Other examples? Maybe one more. All right. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. One that we're probably going to be thinking about even in point three. That's great. That's great. Yeah, all of those are wonderful examples. And so discipling, kind of what we're getting at is that discipling means you have others in your life. You've got others in your life, and you're seeking to be in the lives of others and to seek to do spiritual good to them and letting them into your life to do spiritual good to you. Discipling entails relationships. So where does that happen? If it entails relationships, where should that happen? Well, you've guessed it, the local church, right? For us right here at UBC, for other local churches, those local churches. And so discipling prioritizes the local church. And I want to give you an argument for this. Uh, just from Scripture. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter and the apostles the authority of heaven to affirm gospel confessions or professions of faith and confessors, those who are making those professions of faith, if whether or not they're legitimate uh, followers of Christ. Christ affirms that to Peter when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ affirms that to him. He gives, that, his, that, he gives him the keys of the kingdom, the authority to be able to do that, he and the apostles. Matthew 18, Jesus then gives that authority to the local church to affirm or deny credible gospel confessors and confessions. We see that within bringing someone into membership, really in baptism, into membership, and then as well, even in church discipline, sadly, in the context of Matthew 18. So those passages... They relate to Matthew 28. We cannot read them in isolation from Matthew 28. We've got to have Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Matthew 28 together, where Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, he commands all his disciples to make disciples among all nations by going, baptizing, and teaching all he commanded. The way that that happens the going, the baptizing, the teaching, the way that happens is through local churches, as we see with Matthew 16 and really in Matthew 18 where he establishes the local church. And so we get, he gives the authority to make clear who is and is not a disciple of Jesus through baptism and the Lord's Supper, bringing someone in to the church and then renewing that covenant or set of promises that they have made in coming in to the church in the Lord's Supper. Baptism formally recognizes one as a follower of Jesus. Through the Lord's Supper, they renew that covenant that they have made to the body of Christ. We see this very thing, that it's through the local church that Christ is set up as the main discipling vehicle throughout the world, through the local church. See this thing in Acts and in Paul's letters. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are sent out of the church at Antioch, and they go proclaiming the gospel. Those that receive the gospel, what are they? Acts 2.41. What happens next? Mm -hmm. 
baptized into a local church. That's right. They are baptized, and then the text says in Acts 2.41 that they were added to that number. They knew that there was a number. They knew who was in their number. And so that's what happens. So they go out preaching the gospel. They baptize those who receive Christ. They bring them into the membership of the church. And then when Paul and Barnabas are returning to Antioch, they strengthen the churches that they planted by doing what? What do they try to establish there? How do they strengthen those churches? Thinking about the book of Acts. Visits them. Okay, but what does Paul do when he comes back around on that missionary journey going back to Antioch. He sets up certain leaders, elders, right? He appoints elders, that's right. For what? What are the elders supposed to do? Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4. They're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so those elders are specifically put within those churches to do spiritual good and edification to the body of Christ to equip them to be able to go do spiritual good to others. And so that's why they're appointed, to strengthen those churches. It's why Paul writes letters to local churches. And he does so in order that they may better know how to follow Jesus and do spiritual good to one another. Think about it. All those commands that he gives to the local churches, we often, growing up, would just read those as kind of personal commands to us. Like, yeah, it's just me, you know, and I'm just going to do these things kind of out wherever. But it has a context to it. It's got the local church as its context. And so Paul's writing to these local churches. He's giving these commands, yes, to individuals within the local church, but they're to be lived out with others within the local church. How else would we be able to even do those commands or keep those commands? I think it's a compelling argument for the importance of the local church. So contrary to popular opinion or pop Christianity these days, the local church is actually at the very center of the disciples' obedience and discipling work. It provides the context for how we love one another and how the world knows we're Jesus' disciples, as Jesus tells us in John 13, 34 through 35. And so because we've made these promises to one another, when you're baptized, you come into the local church, you covenant with the local church, you make promises to keep and uphold with one another, because of that, it provides accountability and encouragement as we regularly gather together. After all, the only way that we can consistently stir one another up to love and good works is by not neglecting to meet together, right? As some were in the habit of doing, even in, Paul, even in uh, first century, right? But not neglecting to meet together, when we, when we do meet together, we're to encourage one another, we're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And so the local church isn't an optional add-on. Like, hey, if I feel like going on Sunday, all right, then I might go, right? It's not optional, but it's basic to Christianity. And in one sense, the church is the basic discipler of Christians. It's the first place that we should look for discipling relationships. So if you're looking for discipling relationships, look no further. <laughs> look no further, start after the service, or start right after this class, uh, and even after the service this morning, looking for those to disciple, which we'll talk about in a minute. Well, not only does discipling prioritize the local church, it also prioritizes God's word. Prioritizes his word. So it prioritizes teaching and modeling God's word. You see that under the second subpoint there, under point number one. So since a disciple is by definition a, lear a learner, it implies that they're being taught something. 
And so teaching is central to discipling. We've got to be taught something. And as Jesus put it in the Great Commission, we teach disciples to obey all that he commanded, as Travis just said it a minute ago. So in what ways do we as a church disciple our members through teaching? What are some of those ways, just very quickly? Think formal ways of teaching. Preaching. ABF, right here. What about seeing the gospel? In one sense, it teaches. What would be that? Lord's Supper, baptism, other ways? I think church discipline as well. Obviously, you're seeing it on display there. It's a teaching act. What else? Anything else? Yeah, life groups. Excellent. Sunday night Devo, gathering for prayer. Yeah, those things. Those are formal ways that we seek to do that. Think informally. What would that look like informally in prioritizing teaching and modeling of God's word throughout the week? What would that look like? Okay, great. Discipling a college student. What can that look like? What would discipling a college student look like informally? Yeah, Sermon on the Mount, weekly basis, excellent. Yeah, other ways, think simple ways. Okay, hospitality, so say it, what did you say? Okay, excellent. So what are you doing whenever you invite another brother or sister over when you've got non-Christians in the house as well? Yeah. Oftentimes, this is called discipleship in the context of evangelism, meaning you have a desire to evangelize a neighbor or a non-Christian, and you're going to include other brothers and sisters into that. That's an excellent way to be able to disciple, because not only are you, you're basically showing them uh, and teaching them through showing them and modeling for them what it looks like to evangelize your neighbor, so that they see that, they can go then take that and do the same. Yeah, that's excellent. Other examples? Thinking simple. Praying through the member directory. Bringing somebody alongside you and praying through the member directory, maybe at a meeting you have with somebody. Yeah, great. Other ways? Yeah. Yeah, so having people over after church on Sunday, bringing them over, discussing the sermon, you know, asking what their thoughts were. Um, asking, you know, what things they had questions on and being able to answer some of those questions just like we heard just a minute ago would be excellent. How do you do that under COVID? On the front porch. That's right. Backyard. On, yeah, spaced out. Other ways of doing it under COVID. Yeah, Google Me, Zoom. Yeah, on some of those other examples. Yeah, yeah. All those are great. Yeah, those are all getting at what it looks like, I think, to prioritize teaching and modeling God's word informally throughout the week. So whether you need counsel, 
in your marriage or encouragement to persevere in the faith following a difficult surgery, you know, whether that or encouragement to persevere in the faith following um, any kind of number of things, whether that be death or loss in your life or instruction in how to raise kids in a manner pleasing to Christ, members of the church can help through having spiritually meaningful conversations, right? Talking, Nick, talking about that deliberate conversation uh, that we're seeking to have with one another. I love how one author illustrates this. He says that Jesus didn't intend for churches to work like the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles. You go in, you get your driver's license, and now you have the ability to drive wherever you want. They give you the responsibility, and then you're on your own. As if Jesus said, go, make converts, give them the license of baptism, and then let them go. They're on their own now. Right? That's, that does sound silly. What does he say? Teach them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded. That's a lot, and that's going to take a lifetime. And you're probably not going to get through it all at that point. And so Paul speaks of this emphasis on teaching when he exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 to take what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and then entrust it to faithful men, to to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Four generations right there of discipling relationship focused on teaching. Paul wanted Timothy to pass down teaching to not just any men, but to faithful men who would be able to go and then teach others as well. It is wise for us to pour into those who want to be poured into who will teach others also. That is wise to do that, right? You can't disciple everybody. You do not have all the time in the world to do this. But even in the meantime, and even in kind of those pockets of time that you have, you can be doing spiritual good to lots of different people within the church, whether that's sending a text, having an e- you know, sending an email, doing something very just simple with that regard, seeking to encourage them. We're going to get at that in point number three in just a minute as well. And so it's wise for us, since we can't disciple everyone, to pour into those who want to be fed, who want to be poured into, and who will go into pour into others as well. It's worth noting that discipling is more than just transferring information or just imparting knowledge to one another. I think, uh, you know, even in my history of even discipling, and I think probably I would assume for many of you, it can just kind of get easy of just giving them information all the time. Because it's fairly easy. You can read through a book together, you can read through the scriptures, you can talk about it, and just sit there and hammer info all the time, knowledge. But if we're just giving truth and not pushing one another to apply that truth to our lives so that we live faithfully for the Lord, then we run the risk of knowing a lot about God while actually we could potentially be more formed by news outlets and social media throughout the week. Think about it. Consider our cultural moment right now for a second. Not only before COVID hit, but even more so after with Christians spending more time at home on their phones, their TVs, their computers, whatever device you have, Christians are being more formed. I think generally speaking, across the board, when you look at America today and probably throughout the world uh, to a certain degree, Christians are being more formed right now by Fox News, by CNN, by TikTok, and Instagram who disciple with fear and who stoke with loathing than they are by their churches who are called to stoke faith and love in God's people. That's a problem. That is a problem. The task of forming Christians, it might, even, it might ultimately be harder now than it ever has been 
especially in America with everything that's going on. The pandemic hasn't caused this, but it's exacerbated it. And though the world may be changing before our very eyes, Christ's command to make disciples has not changed. It's not changed, even under COVID. We still have to be about that of forming and transform, or really forming and shaping one another to the word of God and to Christ. And so all the more now do we need to be shaping the minds and hearts of those of one another within this congregation. And not only will this come by teaching the word through spiritually meaningful conversations, but also showing the word with our lives, actually modeling that so that other people would be able to imitate us as we seek to imitate Paul or as we seek to imitate Christ. So not only is discipling taught, but it's also caught. I love how Mark, uh, the, the apostle Mark, or actually the Mark, John Mark, describes Jesus calling his 12 apostles in Mark 3, 13 through 14. He says that Jesus appointed 12 so that they might be with him. There is a withness that Jesus was having among his disciples. He taught and he lived the truth, because he is the truth, <laughs> to his disciples. He intentionally took people along with him. He invested time in them, and he taught them, right? He invested time in them by taking them along with him. If we're just teaching, then our formation to Christ remains in the abstract. And we need to get it from the abstract and move it to the concrete. They need to be able to see it on display and get the the taste of it, to be able to get the scent of it. We need to be taught the truth, and we need to see it lived out concretely. So, for example, kids in the home. I mean, you think of parents right now. For those of you that are parents, this is, this is big because they see all of your faults and failures. They're going to see it all. But will your child be able to say that your life was worthy of imitation? Was it an example? You're not going to be perfect. You don't even have to be, try to be perfect. Okay? But is your life worthy to be exemplified? Is an example for them as they follow Jesus. You think about your coworkers. How are you living among your coworkers? Are you displaying the gospel to them evangelistically through your life? Or those that you're ministering to, even in your discipling relationships? How are you discipling them? What are they seeing as you model it to them? Do you only just meet up to just have a meeting, but yet they're never in your life? I think that's a concern. You need to spend time intentionally investing in them and pulling them into your lives. So I think even in my own life, I mean, part of how I learned evangelism was by going along with another guy while he was evangelizing other people. And so I would just join him. I would watch him. At times, he would ask me to give my testimony. As a matter of fact, I think it was actually God convicting me that I wasn't a believer through me sharing a false testimony that he actually brought me to faith in Christ, oddly enough. Nominal Christianity 101. Welcome to Arkansas. And so that can happen, but I think one of the ways that you learn is by taking people along with you and showing them how to do these things, as Jacob was just talking about. You show the truth that you teach, and it makes following Jesus compelling. It makes following Jesus plausible to the rest of us, right? Whenever we think that, man, there's just no way I can do that. I just can't do that. Ultimately, churches don't need a a discipling program as much as they need a culture of discipling where members actively prioritize the spiritual health of one another. After all, Jesus didn't promise that you or me or my buddy across the street over at that one church way over there that we would somehow 
take on hell and win, right? No. He promised that the church would do that, that it would defeat the gates of hell. It's finally through the church that God's manifold wisdom is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.10. It seems like the church is a wise place to invest our time in discipling one another because it's biblical. And so consider those who spent time pouring into you. Think about the impact that they left upon your life. Think about that impact, whether it's answering questions that you may have had and not getting offended by those questions, recognizing that we're all going to have questions from time to time about different things. How can you model their effort? How can you model that effort that they put into you? In what ways has the church throughout your life done well at discipling you? And I do want to open this one up because I am interested. I'm not talking about just UBC unless literally you were like birthed at UBC and you just grew up here. Um, Though that's great. I would love to hear that as well. But in churches that you've been in, how have churches done that well? In what ways have they done that well in your life? Time? Yep, spending time. So what did that look like? So you gave the example of Yeah. And so there was that time to talk about what they brought up and talk about life. Um, we celebrated holidays together, fun days together. We spent a lot of time together. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I think it shows that the church was central to their life as a disciple, you know, and I think that's important, incorporating everybody into that. And that not being awkward. I think out to the outside world, that would be awkward. And it was a small church, so it was very easy to do. Yeah, that's great. Other ways that the church has done it well. So, well, and I'm sure that those elders were happy to get time with you outside, even, even the classes that they taught, answering questions after class, all of that. Yeah, that's great. Other ways? Maybe one more? Yep, Chandler? Yeah. Yeah, so homogenous groups, trying to get out of those homogenous groups where it's like all college kids that sit in one row, you know, that kind of thing, and just want to hang out with one another a lot of times. But encouraging them to space out and be discipled by older members within the congregation. You want to diversify your discipling relationships. I mean, even, in, you know, thinking through Colossians in that chapter 4, whenever I was talking about all those that he had impacted, as he's going around from place to place, planting churches, and it's just all these people from all over the place. I mean, even his disciples are very different from one another. They're a, they're a diverse group of people. And so whether that's diversity of age or ethnicity or um, interest, whatever that may look like, that is a good thing because that helps to spiritually mature us 
that we may become more like Christ. That or we just become monolithic. We just become homogenous, and everybody that we hang out with all looks like us. Sadly, to be honest with you, within college ministry, on a lot of campuses throughout the world, that is the MO, to get people that are just like you in order to get larger numbers. Sadly. It's called the homogeneity principle. doesn't matter, but there you go. Who are two people? I want, yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're and pulling that from Colossians four, even right in that same kind of diverse group of people, you've got Demas in there. And you've got Mark in there, whom he actually restores back to him. And you've got Alexander the coppersmith as well, yeah. So yeah, you're going to have different outcomes with various people that you are discipling, and yet Paul keeps discipling. That doesn't dictate uh, whether or not you know, he just ends it there or you know, keeps going. He keeps going because he is commanded to do so. He's called to do it, yeah. All right, so who are two people? I want you to think of two people right now that you can do spiritual good to this week. Just think in your head, two people. I want you to have those two people in your mind as we begin to get into point two and really into point three. Two people in your mind that you can do just something simple, you know, easy, like way to just do spiritual good to them this week. So have those mind, have those in your mind. And we're going to look at some of what that looks like in a minute. But why do we disciple? Why do we disciple? So we looked at what is discipling. Why do we disciple? The first reason, I think, is because of love. (laughs) It's love. The motivation for our discipling others begins with a love for God. God loved us in Jesus so that we would love him. And the way that we love God is by loving others. That's how we do that. In Mark 12, A lawyer approaches Jesus, and he asks what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus responds to him in verse 30 by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Lord is showing this lawyer that he wants all our love, all our motives, all our hopes and aspirations to be first and foremost directed and devoted to him. And our devotion to the Lord will express itself in love toward others. That's how it expresses itself. And so Jesus responds to the lawyer with a second command that he was not expecting. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. One comes before the other and yet flows out into the other. We can't love others without a love for God, and we can't love God without loving others. Loving your neighbor, as it's been put, completes the duty of love. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, that we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so our love for one another is really a litmus test of our love for God. It's a litmus test for us. 
So not only is it because of love, but also because of obedience. Number Second sub-point right there under point number two. It's out of obedience. So Jesus says in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Later he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And so we obey Jesus' command to make disciples out of our love for Jesus. Obedience shows where our allegiance lies and what we most love. That's what it does. It shows our allegiance and who we're following. We love Jesus by obeying his command to lead others in obeying him. And a life that obeys Jesus out of a love for Jesus leads to greater joy in Jesus, which I think is one of the third, is the third reason I'm going to give for why we disciple, and it's joy. This one's kind of the more shocking one, a little bit. I mean, we would kind of normally think that, but I think the way that Paul puts it is fascinating. So consider the reward of discipling. It's joy. It produces joy. Discipling is a joy-inducing effort and endeavor, which is remarkable because at times it can be extremely messy and extremely difficult. So where do we see that? I want someone to turn to 3 John, the little letter of 3 John. Let's give the little guy some cred right here. 3 John, verses 2 through 3. Somebody read that. Sorry I didn't put it in the handout. Can you read verse 4? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking with you. All right. So in this letter, I just want us to think about this. In this letter, John is writing to a man named Geis. In part, just to encourage him in how he's welcomed traveling missionaries uh, to his church. And to oppose a man named Diotrephes who wasn't doing that. And so he's commending Geis. And John's love for Gaius in this letter is derived from what glorifies God. That's what it's derived from. It glorifies God when we, as Paul says, walk in the truth. And walking in the truth includes both our profession of faith and our practice out of that, uh, practicing out of that faith. Does our practice align with our profession? John's love is not some kind of abstract thing, but it's got flesh and bones to it. It's the fire it's the fire of love that's stoked by the wood of truth. You put the wood of truth into the fire of love, and that love will begin to burn brighter. That truth ought to cultivate love within us and deepen our joy and the joy of other believers as well. That's what it should do. But imagine being guys. The Apostle Paul says those words. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I mean, my goodness. What would you say if the apostle comes up and he says that about you? That he has no greater joy than to see his children walking in the truth. That's astonishing. What's incredible is that the fruit of others ought to affect us. And so I wonder, brothers and sisters, are you affected by the fruit of one another? And I know I gave this example in Colossians about it being like a narcotic. And you're kind of like, why would he use a negative illustration to prove a positive point? But in one sense, it is like that. It's like a narcotic, spiritual fruit is. Because it's addicting, because you want to see more and more of it. Why? 
Not for the bad reason, because you want to see more of Christ. That's the whole point of the book of Colossians. Paul's just filling them up with Christ so that they'll live a spiritually fruitful life, a spiritually full life in Christ. That's what he's doing. And he's doing the same right here. We have no greater joy, not because Jesus isn't enough to satisfy us, but because God is glorified when others bear fruit and we are fully satisfied in Jesus. If our highest joy is in God being glorified, then it makes sense. It makes sense that John has no greater joy than seeing his spiritual children walking in the faith. The joy is the reward of the heartache of the messiness of discipling relationships. Paul talks about presenting the Colossians in that way, as I just mentioned, right? It's the joy, it's the reward of discipling relationships. So what would you say gives you no greater joy? What gives you no greater joy? Is it that? Is it that? What a compelling reason to make disciples. I love that reason. Number three, how do we disciple? So this one is going to be kind of a us thinking through how do we do it in the age of COVID for right now? How do we do this? Okay. The first thing I think that's helpful for us to think about is really just our capacity. <laughs> I think you've got to think about where you're at in life and think about your capacity uh, in discipling. Yes, you're called to make disciples, but you need to think about your capacity. So how many of you have ever thought to yourself, I just don't have enough time to disciple? Have you ever asked yourself that or thought that? Raise of hands. I don't have enough time to disciple, whatever season that may be. Yeah. And so many of you have limited capacity, whether that's due to health, whether that's due to stage of life. Maybe you just had a child or maybe you've got a lot of children in the home that you're seeking to take care of. Maybe that's a demanding work schedule that has you working 12, 13, maybe even 14 crazy enough hours a day. And so it's a demanding work schedule that calls for it. Whatever it is, I think we need to take into effect our capacity right now. And what we need to do is we need to start simple and small. Often we get intimidated by discipling because we have an idea. We have an idea of what it's to look like. It's got to be a Bible study. It's got to be able to, we got to be able to read a book together. I've got to be able to think theologically well through this book or this Bible study if I'm ever going to be able to disciple anyone. Whether it looks like that or having somebody over for dinner. Well, I've got to fix the house up. I've got to get everything ready. I've got to be great at hospitality to be able to disciple. And instead, what I think would be helpful for us to do is to begin to value things that are small. Small steps, right? So whether that's a text message, a five-minute conversation, conversation after, the, after church this morning, I think one thing that's often helpful that a friend told to me at a previous church I was at was focus on at least one person who is new in the main service, and at the Sunday evening service, focus on those that you already know and how you can be encouraging them. I think that's a helpful, I think that's a helpful tool uh, to take with you. So this morning, as you see visitors coming in, try to focus on one person you don't know, one visitor that you would like to get to know, and just even ask them how they received the sermon. You could just start there, okay? You can start there. Especially in this pandemic, helping people understand that discipleship is doing spiritual good, right, and that it can be legitimately expressed through small things that will free us up to disciple better. It can be small. It can be simple. So just start there. Start there. 
You don't have to do a 12-week Bible study to be discipling others. We just need to pay attention to the needs of others, as Jack Gilliland would say. we got to pay attention to the needs of other people. That means when people are talking, you've got to listen. Oftentimes, I totally miss people's names when they're new because I'm thinking of, like, my next question. But you've got to be paying attention and listening to the various things that they're saying, and those are going to guide you into the questions that you're going to be asking uh, next in that conversation. We cannot disciple everyone, but we can for a few. And it can be helpful whenever we're doing that spread out broadly, going, going wide with it, when we're trying to do that broadly throughout the congregation. Just with simple things of texting, emailing, calling, those kinds of things can be helpful. Because those kind of discipling relationships that you're going to go deeper into, right, you're not going to be able to do that with a lot of people. And so you can go smaller into those. Um, I think the second thing that we see right there is to go deep and wide. So obviously deeper with fewer and yet wider in terms of what I just said. We can't connect with 650 people, but we can connect with 10. And look at, in discipling relationships, look at the diversity in eth- ethnically and generationally. Discipling also, this is a good reminder for us, is a two-way street. I think oftentimes what happens is we have our mentor, and our mentor just basically feeds me everything that I need. Right? I don't really, I don't contribute anything to this relationship other than him just feeding me whatever I need for the week. But in reality, discipling relationships, they're actually a two-way street. They're going to go both ways. So whether that's you being fed by someone who's mentoring you, maybe they're correcting you in sin, or maybe they're just helping you to understand Scripture and how it applies to your life, you also can be encouraging and helping them as well, asking about their week, asking questions back to them. It's probably one of the most frustrating things at times whenever we get college students where it's just like literally I'll ask 50 different questions at a lunch meeting, and yet it's like, I didn't get asked one question. As a matter of fact, I think Haley and I at one point were just like laughing about this. It's not funny, but it's just shocking. Ask questions back. Ask, ask questions back. And I'm not speaking primarily about our own college students. I'm speaking about just going onto campus meeting new students. All that to say, ask good questions back. Text them. You know, uh, chime in throughout the week to see how they're doing. Look up, Yeah. Next, I think, think context. So not only capacity, but also think your context. So wherever you're at, you can disciple there. You can disciple there. If you're at home and you're a stay-at-home mom or maybe you're at home on the weekend and you've got your kids, uh, whether you're a father or a mother, and you're at home with the kids, you can bring people into that situation. It doesn't mean that in order to disciple, you have to have undivided attention. No, you can be discipling as you're bringing people into the home, watching you parent correct your children, teach your children the word, uh, and also having spiritual conversation with the one that's coming into your home that you're discipling. And so think about your home, whether that's sitting outside on the back porch in order to space out to meet, or even uh, bringing those uh, that you're discipling alongside you in yard work. This is super helpful. I mean, you're, you're doubling the pace at which you get things done. Stick them on the weed eater, you ride that riding, riding lawnmower, and get it done in one hour. It's fantastic. And you can have great conversation afterward. Or you can put mulch down, and you're just laying mulch and spreading that stuff out while he's doing it in the fall and spring, or she's doing it in the fall and spring. Whether it's outside work or inside work, bring people into that. Um, As well, at your workplace, think about maybe even using your lunch break or bringing them over into your workspace because you can't leave, uh, possibly, because it's a busy day. 
Think about a grocery run, taking people along with you, right? If you've got your kids in the car, hey, they're going to probably be flipping out and going crazy, but that's fine. That's part of what they need to see. And so invite them into that car ride, going to the grocery store, going to the kids' baseball game, or uh, bringing them over for dinner one night. Or if you have a pool, bringing them, and it's like a resort, like the Gilliland Resort out there off of 112, okay? You bring people into your lives wherever you're at. All right, content. So not only do we have capacity, because we've got to finish it up right here. Not only do we have capacity, uh, and not only do we have context, but we also need our content. So how many of you have ever thought and said to yourself, I just don't know how to disciple? I don't know how to disciple. Raise of hands. Raise of hands. Okay. Yeah. And I think the good news is, uh, you've already been hearing this, content-wise, you can go a lot of different places. If you wanted to do more of a, a programmatic kind of approach and do a 12-week study, something like that, that's great. Praise God for that. That's wonderful. But it doesn't have to be that. What would be other forms of content that we could give to one another in order to make it easy and simple that anybody can digest and be able to give to other people? Other forms of content. Book of Scripture. Yep, taking them through a book of Scripture. Maybe you go through just paragraph by paragraph. You ask four questions. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about man? What do, how, do we, how does this point to Jesus? And what's our response to this section? There you go. I think that's a wonderful time in the Word with somebody. Yeah. Anybody can do that. Any of you can do that. And as a matter of fact, technically, you don't even have to prep when you do that. You just got to know your questions, and you're because you're going to be reading it and dialoguing and thinking through it at that time as well. Other content, prayer. prayer. Okay, so describe that. Yep, teaching them how to pray through the directory so that they're learning how to do it. Yep. Other content that you can take them through. Maybe content that you've used and you found and you found it to be helpful in your relationships. Okay, what's one you would recommend? Frank, you read a lot. Got to pick one. Okay, Mathis. Okay, yeah, Habits of Grace by David Mathis. It is a great book. Yeah, it's a good one. Kind of on disciplines of grace. Yeah, it's good. Other content that you all have used that you found to be helpful? Maybe simple, simple content. Don't have to prepare a book study. Sharing your testimony. Yeah, that's excellent. That's great. So like sitting down, um, kind of getting an outline together and just writing out your testimony together or, or just sharing your testimony. Just sharing your testimony. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's great. Excellent. It's an excellent way to do that. One more. One more on content before we move on and try to finish it up. Yeah, that's excellent. Going through the sermon passage for the coming week. That's right. Yeah, that's excellent. That way there are, you're, already, you're doing two things in one. Because not only are you getting the word together through that passage, but you're also preparing them to hear the word better, which is wonderful. Yeah, it helps Brad out a ton. In the back? 
Yeah, accountability questions. What, what are some that maybe uh, either you've used or someone else has used with you that you found helpful? Yeah, yeah, thinking all different kinds of, yeah, physical, spiritual, yep, that's good. Okay, what are some other ideas? I'm going to give you a couple, but I want to hear from you all. I think another one I think that was super helpful, even just hearing about this, Imelda McClinton received a phone call from Betty Hanna. Anybody know how old Betty Hanna is? She is over 100 years old. Betty Hanna picks up the phone, calls Imelda McClinton, and is like, Imelda, how you doing? And just calling her to see how she's doing. Imelda's like, my goodness, she's over 100 years old. She can call me and ask me how I'm doing. Well, then I ought to be able to call somebody else and ask how they're doing. So she picks up the phone. She calls Bev, Bev Lowe's, uh, and asks how she's doing, right? That's a simple way. That's a simple way to ask how you're doing spiritually, how you're doing emotionally, how you're doing physically. That ought not to be weird if somebody asks you that, who's another believer. That ought not to be weird. In fact, it ought to be normal if we're checking in on one another and we're asking those kinds of questions because all those things are connected. Um, I think as well of a small group of single young men calling an elderly widow in the nursing home since she can't receive visitors. They're calling her, asking how she's doing, how she's making it in one of the nursing homes because she can't receive any visitors. Um, I think as well, getting with minorities and even kind of learning their situation, just uh, thinking about our current context, um, learning from their situation and thinking about looking after the interest of one another rather than just our, our own and thinking about ways in which cultures can be different at times, can be super helpful in ministering to one another, super helpful in getting informed and educated and equipped in that way. What are some other ways, other practical ideas for discipling? Yeah. And oftentimes relationships come up. And I, I get to tell them about my relationship with my wife. She's been doing Many times guys will say, I have a terrible relationship with my girlfriend or my wife. Help me understand what. Yeah, that's right. That's great. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that we need to be candid and honest with one another whenever we do speak with one another um, and ask, how are you doing, to give a legitimate, like, yeah, I'm not doing so hot. If you're not doing great, uh, I think we need to work. Yeah, we can all work on that because oftentimes we just go by and say we're doing okay. Other ways, I think, you know, for um, young Christians saying to an older Christian, like he's having struggle or she's struggling to get in the word, um, and she just asked if she can come over uh, in the mornings and just get in the Word with you before whether kids go to school or before you go to work, and you just get in the Word together so that she can get accountability uh, to do her uh, daily devotions with the Lord. I think that's a wonderful way to do that and to do that over time. Any final examples? Yep, Chandler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you said thinking about where to live? Okay, that's great. Okay, yeah.
Yeah, yeah. I think the, thing, the final thing I'll say is that, that's a great example because I think a lot of times um, we can think whenever we're trying to figure out a place to live or to buy a house or whatever, we are often not thinking proximity to the church or proximity really to the body of Christ. doesn't mean you have to live next to the church, but like where do a lot of the members live at? And thinking about proximity to other members to where if someone has a need, you can meet that need really quickly uh, and be there fairly quickly to meet them. Um, I think we need to take that into account a lot more than I think we probably do. Um, and so, yeah, those are things to consider. All right. When we do these things, when we seek to disciple and enter into discipling relationships with one another, it is a compelling witness to the world of a supernatural community that the world cannot get outside of coming into God's, pe- God's people and, to get, and being a part of that community. When we do that, it displays the gospel to them, and it glorifies the Lord when we do that. And so I just want to encourage you all, think about those two people that I highlighted earlier and about how you can be doing spiritual good to them. Something simple, if it's not someone you're going deep with, but something simple where it's a text message, a call, an email, a conversation after church, maybe the person who's visiting, trying to approach them after church. All those are just simple ways that we can be practicing and doing that broadly and deeply. All right, I'm going to pray for us and we will finish.